Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Oh, good evening, Brother Nathan, and welcome to those who are listening. Thank you so much for allowing us to be at home this evening. And wherever you are listening from, we are here to interact with you. We are going to start out tonight's episode with two videos in relation to two videos that have been sent in by a listener. Pastor Murphy, the first one is in relation to Matthew chapter 24. It's a lengthy video. Don't have the time to listen to it all here as part of the program. But the premise is that Matthew 24 has already been fulfilled. Is that biblically accurate? Well, I listened to the video, and the guy, uh, his position, his biblical position on prophecy is what is called the preterist um, interpretation. And by preterist interpretation, mean that this is a view of prophecy that uh, believes that um, Matthew 24, the book of Revelation, all of these are uh, already completed and just um, use pictorial forms um, to, in order to illustrate uh, that these events already occurred. Um, there are four basic views to Bible prophecy. There's the preterist view, which sees that all of the prophecy were mentioned in Matthew 24 and in Revelation were already fulfilled in the first century. There's also what is called the idealist view, which takes the book of Revelations and says that this is a symbolic expression between the battle between good and evil. And then there's what you call the historical view, which also teaches that the book of Revelation in pictorial form gives the entire history of the church. And then there's the futuristic view, which believes that the book of Revelation, John was told to write things that have been, those things which are, and those things which are to come. So the four, three different uh, tenses uh, dealing with the, the, that which is with the churches, that which he saw is that which glorified Christ, and that which is to come from chapter 4, to the end of chapter uh, 22 has to do with futuristic. Uh, In terms of the Matthew 24, I think we can deal with that to show that that could not have been fulfilled already. Uh, If you go to the Matthew chapter 24, um, uh, look at verse number, uh, read verse 1 and 2, Nathan, please. Matthew chapter 24 and verses 1 and 2 says, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not not all these things? Verily I say unto you, 
There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, if you look at verse 3, that the disciples came to him and asked him two two basic questions. And he sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? So notice the concern about the sign when he returns and concern about the end of the age. When are you going to wrap up this whole thing and bring it to completion? Uh, and there are several things in this same chapter that is very, very clear. That is, Look at verse number 14, for example. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Again, um, that has not been fulfilled. Uh, the person is saying that Matthew 24 was fulfilled in the, in the first century. I mean, that's so ludicrous, it's not even worth pointing out. that. That's good. Then look at verse number 21. What if you were to say that uh, Romans chapter 1 talks about the creation, uh, I'm using this loosely, but preaching forth the goodness of God? Yeah, but that's not what it talks about. The okay. kingdom, the gospel oh. of the kingdom. They know that the kingdom is coming. That's what was supposed to be um, in all the world. And remember that during the tribulation period, according to the book of Revelation, 144 Jews are selected as evangelists to go into all the world to get the fight before the Lord returns in his second coming. So uh, clearly that's not happened as yet. Look at verse 21. I think this is in itself almost conclusive. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. I think nobody believes that what, that happened in the first century. I mean, this is the unparalleled time of uh, tribulation that the Lord said it's never happened before, nor would it ever, ever happen again in history. So clearly the Great Tribulation could not have been fulfilled. I mean, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus and the temple was burnt, I mean, the Jews were scattered. I mean, that cannot be said. That that's the worst form of tribulation the world has ever seen. I mean, that is so ludicrous. It's not even worth trying to uh, defend it. So clearly this is a time coming that is unparalleled, unprecedented, the kind of when you read the book of Revelation, by the time this whole thing is over, between half the world's population uh, to uh, to two-thirds are destroyed. Uh, we got nine billion people. Imagine what that means to even lose half of those people. That's what the tribulation would do. That's never happened before. And then look at the cosmic events that are mentioned in verse 29. Verse 29 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Again, if the person is saying that Matthew 24 has been fulfilled, do you know of any time in history where the sun was darkened, the moon didn't give its light, the stars fell? I mean, that is, and he's saying this, this would happen immediately after the tribulation. So if you're saying the tribulation took place, these events should have occurred, but they never occurred. And the whole idea is that there's going to be such a horrible time that the whole the whole um, cosmic universe is going to be shaken. I literally believe that. I know in, in 1970-something here in Antigua. 74. Right. They had a, 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 a real graphic uh, earthquake. I understand it almost felt like the earth tilted. I think that is something parallel to what's going to happen with the heavens and, and uh, the moon, etc. And, of course, when the sun is darkened, the moon can't show because the moon is a reflection of the sun. Very, very scientific as far as that's concerned. And then look at verse 30 and 31. 
And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. Now again, this takes place after the Great Tribulation. Can anybody say that it's ever been fulfilled? No. So if in the first century you're saying it was fulfilled, where did Jesus come back in the first century and gather everybody out? It's just totally ridiculous. Uh, where I think that he makes a valid point that I think even the Tim LaHaye books on um, the, the rapture and what's his series? His series um, Left Behind? Left Behind. Uh, uh, misused scripture, I agree with that. And he, he mentioned, for example, look at um, verse 37 to verse 41. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came, and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 40 says, Then shall two be in the field, and one shall be taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, and one shall be taken and the other left. Again, that's not referring to the rapture. Very, but it's used in the Tim Lehigh books as the rapture. If you look at it very carefully, he's saying the same thing that happened in Noah's day is going to happen. What happened in Noah's day? When these people were taken away, they're taken away in judgment. Only a remnant was left, Noah. And that's what's going to happen during the tribulation. The wrath of God is going to pour out on humanity. They will be swept away in wrath. And it's a remnant that goes into the, the millennial kingdom. But you see, the, the problem is that when you use that particular passage and you're saying, but wait a minute, what happened in Noah's day? You see what I'm saying? The yeah. parallel there? So Interesting. The, the abuse of that text is what really makes people say, but uh, that's not what he's teaching. And he's correct about that because he's, he's comparing what happened in Noah's day to what's going to happen in the tribulation period. And he's saying these people were swept away in judgment. Remember, only eight people were left. Same thing is going to happen. It's about sweeping away people in judgment. And you're going to have a remnant left that goes into the millennial kingdom. So I think that needs to be clarified. <clears throat> that The abuse of that text has led some to uh, to say, but that's not what happened in Noah's day. Uh, and that is correctly, that's correct. It's interesting. I would venture a guess that you could probably read those verses without context to many Christians and say, what is that describing? And we've been accustomed to associating that with the yeah, rapture. Yeah. But you're saying that's after the rapture in the tribulation. Yeah, but it's not, I'm saying that. It's right yeah. there itself. Well, right. It's right there itself. It's a sequence of it. It's just that we get the idea of one taken and one left the same way to the rapture, but that's not what's being taught in the passage. It's comparing a parallel between what happened in Noah's day and what's going to happen during the tribulation period. What was in Noah's day, it was God's wrath poured out on planet Earth, sweeping away uh, those that were um, sinful, and you had a remnant that was left that uh, went into the new new earth, basically. Parallel is the same thing. When the, the Lord comes back in judgment, tribulation period, he's sweeping away all of these uh, it's about wrath upon man, and a remnant is going to be left. That's why I said that the Bible says one-third will be left. And remember that during the tribulation period, two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. And only one-third are going to be But these are the ones that will go into the, 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 uh, into the millennial kingdom, see? Just like Noah went into the new earth, 
And same thing that's mentioned. So the parallel is there. But because we're so much accustomed to one taking and one left, that we confuse the two together and conflate the two together. And that's why I say, Nathan, the important thing of interpreting the Bible is context. If you don't look at the context of the passage, you can easily be, you can take a verse from anywhere and uh, use it in the wrong way unless you fit that verse into the context. Thank you very much for the individual who sent in these videos. Uh, anything else you want to mention on the Matthew 24 video before we move on to no, the I next think one? No, I think that answers the question, but I think people need to be aware that there's not just one view of interpreting the Scriptures. Uh, in terms of prophecy, there are four different ways. There's the historical view, there's the preterist view, there is the allegorical view, and also there is the futuristic view. All of those are four different ways. What what defines the difference between those is the method of interpretation. The futurist view uses the historical grammatical way, the literal interpretation of the Bible. It doesn't try to... Um, it doesn't try to allegorize the Bible to mean something deeper or something more spiritual or something esoteric that you that's not there. We take the Bible for what the Bible teaches. Now, of course, you'll come across uh, similes and metaphors, and you'll come across allegories, you'll come across uh, types and pictures. You interpret accordingly, like any other form of literature. But the thing about the futuristic view is it takes Bible prophecy, same way in the Old Testament, the promises and the prophecy were literally fulfilled, it believes that the the New Testament prophecy will be literally fulfilled. That's the difference between the others. The others are trying to um, say there's something much deeper, and the symbols mean something much more deeper and more spiritual, etc., etc. And that's where a lot of the confusion comes in. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 745. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by dialing one 268 462 7420. Or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454. You can join us on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page and click on the Facebook Live video link. And while you are watching the program behind the scenes in the studio, you can comment in the comment section and your question will get to Pastor Murphy live on the air. The next video that was sent in is uh, along the premise that the rapture is not mentioned in Scripture. There's no biblical basis for the rapture. What is your uh, biblical interpretation on this? Well, we must admit that when you read the King James Version or any modern version, the word rapture is not there. And the, the, the word rapture really comes from a Latin word rapture, which means to be caught up, basically. Um, but this doctrine, uh, there's no doubt about it, that even though the word is not in the Bible itself, there's no question that the doctrine is taught in, in two passages of Scripture, starting 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you look um, at the passage for me in 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then look at verse, uh, well, let's read, Read that section um, from about verse 14 or 15. All right, starting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, 
that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And you see that verse in verse 17? Uh, we should be... Read it again. Verse 17 says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. Okay, so notice the, the word caught up. The word there in the Greek language, basically the word harpazo, and it means to snatch or to catch away. That's where you get the rapture from. The rapture is the idea of, of taken, uh, removing, basically. To show you how that word is used, Nathan, if you look at uh, Acts chapter nine, Acts chapter 8, verse 39, in case of uh, Stephen, look there for just a moment. Acts 8, 39. verse 39, says... And when they were come out up out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. Yeah. So here is the same word, the, the Spirit. And, and again, it's like these, uh, Philip was immediately removed and carried to a different location, and they didn't see him. Same word, caught, up, ca- caught away. And then look also at Second Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 2 and 4, where the Apostle Paul talks about a... Um, uh, his, his experience in the third heaven. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth, such an one caught up to the third heaven. And Same word, caught up there. Uh, snatched up, basically. Paul is talking about an experience that he had, and most people believe it's his experience he had in the book of Acts chapter 14 when he was stoned and they thought he was dead. Most people believe that this is the experience where Paul was taken up to the third heaven and he saw things he said he could not even utter, etc., etc. You notice that in that same chapter, God gave him a thorn in the side to keep him humble because if you ever went to heaven, one of the things you want to talk about, what you, what you saw, what you heard, mm-hmm. and that is what kept Paul very humbled in, in the same chapter. But the point there is that harpazo, he was caught up, taken away, up to the third heaven. Same word as used here in the book of Thessalonians. See? So, uh, the point that the gentleman made on the, re- on the video is that there's going to be a resurrection. No doubt about that. The Bible says that the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive shall be caught up to be with him. So there's going to be a resurrection when the Lord comes back. Remember, in the same passage you read, um, I think you read from verse 14. Read that again. Second uh, Thessalonians? Yeah, first. First Thessalonians 4. four thirteen. Uh, I think it was 14. You start at 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now think about that for just a moment. You, you read that verse again, that will God, Christ bring with him, God bring with him. So, absent for the body is present with the Lord. So when he comes back, he comes back with the spirit of the, of the believer, and the, the body is raised, and the spirit in the body, because you don't have a human without a body and a spirit. Humanity... You must have the physical, and you must have the... But, of course, the physical part is transformed like onto our Lord's body. So there is going to be a resurrection where the he would raise the dead, the spirit meets the body, and but he's also said we who are alive would be caught up. We haven't died, 
uh, and we'll be caught up with him. So there's going to be a resurrection when he comes back, but there's also going to be a rapture of those who are still alive. That's the point we're making. But he only emphasizes the resurrection part of it, missing the fact that the dead will rise, but then we who are alive will be caught up with him. That's where the rapture comes in. Uh, the other thing is, Nathan, if you look at Second um, Second Corinthians chapter 15, First Corinthians chapter 15, sorry. First Corinthians chapter 15. Um, if you read, uh, I didn't put down the exact verses here. But to the end of that chapter almost, uh, let me just check it up here for just a moment. It talks about the resurrection of the yeah. dead starting in verse 12. Yeah, read that, yeah. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witness, ye are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. Okay, I'm looking for the section where it says, Behold, I show you a mystery in the same chapter. Um, uh, it's almost to the end of the chapter, latter part of the chapter. All right. Let me just do a quick station ID here. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. You can also listen online anywhere in the world by going to www. Dot radio lighthouse 51. Dot org. First Corinthians fifteen fifty one says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Again, that's the that's the rapture there. The, the believers, all believers are not going to die. That's what he mean by sleep. But we shall all be what? Changed Change. and transformed. See? Go ahead, we, we continue reading. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. See. So the dead are going to be changed, and the believers are going to be changed. When you take the two passages together, you've, that's what the rapture is all about. It's the those who are still alive, who do not die, who do not sleep in death, they will be transformed and they will be changed at the rapture. That is where the rapture comes in. Uh, and uh, So to say that there's no rapture, uh, is uh, because the word itself is not in the scripture. As a matter of fact, you, we could replace the word uh, harpazo to snatch or to catch away with the word rapture. It's just that it was never done, basically. So uh, I'm, I'm, it's very, very clear when you look at those two passages. The other one is, of course, the passage that our Lord gave in uh, John where he says um, in John chapter 14, um, the promise, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will what? Come again and do what? Receive you unto myself. He's talking about coming back for the believers to receive them unto himself. Of course, the detail of what that meant is only given in, in Paul because Paul calls it a mystery. Remember that the New Testament mysteries are not mysteries in the sense that they're enigmatic or cryptic that you can't understand. It's just that these are things that were not revealed in the old dispensation but are now revealed. Like the church. Church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's a new uh, it's a, it's a new body that replaces Israel. 
that mystery of the church Paul reveals to us in the book of Ephesians. He calls it the mystery of the church, which is Jew and Gentile becoming one body in Christ. That was never foreseen. In the Old Testament, you had to become an Israelite to be part of God's people. But they never saw the idea that the Jews and the Gentiles would become one body, uh, irrespective. In, in That's the mystery. And the rapture is a mystery. The other thing I've said on a previous broadcast, Nathan, is that every, every truth you find in the New Testament there is a comparable truth in the Old Testament. Every type you find in the um, New Testament, Old Testament, there's an anti-type in the New Testament. And what I mean by that is this. When you look at the rapture, you can see it very clearly in the case of Enoch and also in the case of um, uh, Elijah. Both were translated without dying. The question is, where is the type of that? The only type of that is in the rapture. You see what I'm saying? So every New Testament truth has an Old Testament uh, type. And that's where I believe as well that that confirms the idea. Maybe it's about how could there be a rapture? Well, we had a rapture before. Enoch was taken before he died. Elijah was taken up before he died. And that's what the, the rapture is all about. It's about uh, believers not dying or Christ coming to return. Uh, believers are re- resurrected. Those who are alive and remain are now s- changed and taken to be with the Lord. See, that's the biblical teaching. Now, we have types of the tribulation. I mentioned Noah's Ark, <laughs> that the Jews are preserved. Noah and his family is a representative of the Jews being preserved during the tribulation period. Just like they were preserved, and the others were swept away in judgment. Tribulation, same thing. The world is going to come under judgment and swept away in judgment. You've got a reserve remnant that's going to be saved. So there are parallels there in, 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 as far as that is regard. The other thing I say, Nathan, is that people fail to recognize the distinction between what is called the rapture and the revelation. They're not two things, uh, not the same thing. If I might draw some comparison between the rapture and the revelation, in the New Testament, the rapture is called the parousia, which is the presence of Christ. In the, Old Te- in the New Testament, it's called the epiphemia, which is the unveiling of Christ. One is a New Testament mystery, the rapture, the revelation is the Old Testament prophecy. The Lord is coming back to judge the world. That is already in the, in, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. One is meeting in the air, First Thessalonians chapter 4, 17. One is when he comes back uh, at the revelation. He stands on Mount Olive, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4 and 9. One, he comes as a bridegroom. The other one, he comes to Israel as Israel's king. Two different things. One, he uh, is involved in the translation of the church. One, again, is he's coming to set up his millennial kingdom to rule. Uh, one is a, is comes prior to the day of wrath, which is the rapture. One comes and involves the wrath of God. Uh, one, the lower creation is not changed. One, when he comes back, we go into the millennial, and the whole creation is changed. Okay? Uh, Christ returned uh, to heaven with the saints. In the case of the Revelation, Christ returns and remains on earth and establishes his kingdom. Okay. One is a message of comfort. One is a message of judgment. Uh, one is where the church is listening for the song to the trumpet. One is the other one where the, the, we're expecting judgment and the complete transformation of the cosmic world in terms of the world being shaken. In other words, there are numerous uh, contrasts between the rapture 
and the revelation. And the rapture relates to the church. The revelation is what the Old Testament talks about. The Lord coming to judge is called the day of the Lord. That's what the revelation coming in his glory with the angels to take vengeance. That is in the Old Testament. But as far as the rapture coming for the church and the believers who won't die, that's not in the Old, in the New Te- in the Old Testament. And if people don't make those distinctions, you'll always have the confusion that we have. But again, the only way you can make those distinctions is if you take the Bible literal. And the other thing I would say that confuses people is that we understand why the church would be raptured. And, uh, and we understand that God has not finished with Israel. We understand that. So it's very clear to us. People who don't see that, think that God is finished with Israel, they can't see how there could be a rapture and then the Lord second coming and dealing with Israel and the nations. They can't see that. That's where the confusion comes in. And when you can't make that distinction, and the reason why you do that is because we take the Bible literally, we interpret it grammatically, historically, etc. Those who uh, don't take that grammatical, historical view and interpret the Bible literally, and interpret it allegorically or symbolically, they confuse Israel and the church, and that's where all the problems lie in terms of making the distinction between the rapture and the revelation. Is the rapture a fundamental of the faith? What I'm asking is, can a person be a born-again believer headed to heaven and not view the rapture, define it the same as you Well, let me put it this way. If you were to read uh, Matthew Henry, and you would read uh, some of the the um, Reformed theologians uh, who wrote extensively on these matters. When it came to Bible prophecy, they were totally confused. Remember that most <coughs> theological books that you go to study uh, theology, most of them are amil or post-millennium. They don't believe in a literal earthly kingdom. Now, if we, if we make it a fundamental issue that a person must believe this, you put all of these people including Jonathan Edwards, by the way, all of these people would be lost, right? Because they did not see this. Remember that the doctrine of the rapture, comparatively speaking, is a recent doctrine in terms of the last 100, 150 years. Uh, and that's because I think the a lot of the churches that came out of the Catholic like the Lutheran church and the, those kind of churches, they still maintain a residue of the, some of those beliefs about the church conquering the world and establishing God's kingdom. That's how it was perceived when the church was dominating the world and controlling all politics. So that interpretation was carried over into those people's writings. Uh, and that's the problem. So I don't think it's a fundamental issue in the sense that it's one of the great fundamentals of the faith that if a man doesn't believe he's lost or whatever. But I do feel that, uh, you remember what Daniel was told? to seal up these things until the time of the end when knowledge will increase. Okay. But it's only then they will begin to understand what the Bible prophecy is about. But up until 150 years, we didn't have that insight. The other thing is that we have the retrospect of history, like Israel returning to Palestine. Other people didn't have that at all, basically. But we've had that, uh, etc. So I think it's uh, one of those areas where um, I do not know of any denomination that makes this area of prophecy a, a core issue in terms of fellowship is concerned. Uh, and I don't think it's one of those fundamental doctrines that are necessary to believe to be saved. But I do feel as you get more light into it, quite frankly, it puzzles me that people can't see the truth that is so clear in the Bible. But then I understand the problem. The 
Reformed churches and other churches don't have a place for Israel. As far as they're concerned, the church has replaced Israel completely. That's where they're blind to. They don't read uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11 that tells you that Israel is only blind in part. But then the days coming when the final Gentiles is fulfilled, the last believer of the Gentiles, then all Israel is going to be saved. They, I, for some reason, they have a blind spot there, and I can't figure it out yet. But uh, So I don't think we should make it an issue of being a, a fundamental doctrine that determines whether a person is saved or not. As you were talking, my mind just went back to early the other morning. I heard one of our broadcasters reading a quote from Luther, and Luther was describing, trying to reconcile uh, the book of Revelation, and he said something to the effect of it's neither apostolic or prophetic and the God that's described here, I just can't, through my spirit, reconcile it. I guess because of the horrific scene that is described. But um, we are all on the, the Christian journey, and God, as you said, gives... Why does God give some more light than others? Isn't that unfair? I don't think it's necessarily unfair. I think a lot has to do with the stage of history that we're at. There are certain truths that are so relevant. Like, for example, you take the same Luther... Think about that for just a moment. You imagine one man standing up against the entire world when it comes to the whole matter of salvation. The church was teaching all this time that a person is saved by joining the church and by works. Luther came on the scene. I don't know if people really understand what it is to take a stand. You're the only man, quite frankly, that is holding the position and the entire world, religious world, is against you. That is where a man of literature was needed for that hour. And that's where the issue was, the matter of salvation. That was the core issue at that period of time. And thank God it did. The core issue um, in our time, basically, has a lot to do more with Bible prophecy because we got much more understanding. As, as I said in the book of Daniel, seal these prophecies up until the time of the end when uh, knowledge will increase and man will now gain insight into this thing. So it became a, study, a focus of study only last 150 years, basically. Uh, and unfortunately, we are living in that period of time. But that should make us very much aware that the time got to be, the end got to be near because he's told, seal it until the time of the end when these things will be revealed and men would gain knowledge in this particular area. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.05. If you are listening to this on the Saturday rebroadcast and you have a question, you can still send it in via WhatsApp or text message to 1-268-782-1454, and we will answer it the next live episode that we have. Again, if you're listening on a Saturday afternoon rebroadcast, there's no one in the studio. You can't call and we put live on the air, but you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Thank you to the individuals who have interacted with us. And Pastor, the next question is changing gears a little bit. It says, Pastor Murphy, is there a place for Christian entertainment that is not strictly a Bible story? For example... Is C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series legitimate consumption for a Christian young person? After all, they are fantasy and involve talking animals and magic. Well, I, I, um, I think this is where you have to draw a line of what is proper within the church itself. I mean, um, 
Christian creativity, uh, different art forms, whether it be uh, literary skill that the person has or some other form of artistic ability to have, they have legitimate expression within the Christian community. But in terms of the church, you you wouldn't want that within the church itself. But take like um, a radio um, like you have here, or take, for example, if you wanted to, there, there, there are churches that have lectures on the reformers that have lectures on, on, on different aspects that relate to Christianity for the body of the believers to come together to, to learn things. Um, I don't have a problem with uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is one of the <laughs> premier Christian apologists. If you haven't read Mere Christianity, you ought to read it. It's one of the classical um, books when it comes to defending the Christian faith, etc., etc. Uh, he also wrote other, like The Destiny of Man, etc. You can get all of his works, called the Complete Works of, of um, C.S. Lewis. He has a series that you're talking about there in um, Chronicles, Chronicles of Narnia. It's really designed for uh, young people and children, and it's, it's using um, pictorially Christ is a lion. I forgot all the details about it, but uh, it is actually in um, story form, telling the story of redemption and the story of, uh, of, of of how man got saved and the enemy and stuff like that. It's almost like Pilgrim's Progress, to, to be honest with you. It's the same type of um, same type of presentation, allegorical kind of presentation, but he's using it in, in story form. But don't miss the point of the story. The story is about redemption. The king, the lion, is Christ, okay? Um, so I don't have a problem um, with it. I, I think it is, how, I mean, there's got to be something more we can use our artistic form. What about uh, drawings and paintings? Do we get rid of those two? Do we get rid of Michelangelo? Do we get rid of uh, David that was uh, the statue of David? What do we do in a case like that? There has to be a, a, a place for creativity and artistic ability that God has given the people. And to use that for the kingdom of God's sake, and there's nothing wrong in using it in story form, so that um, once during the narrative, et cetera, et cetera, it is, is, is explained somewhere along what it's all about. I think the problem is that people might hear and, and the reading of it or whatever and not even aware what the, the whole series is all about. But it's basically about uh, Christ conquering the world and becoming king and the enemies uh, that he has to face with uh, along the way. So it, it, it's really a Christian literature, uh, and I, I don't have a dispute about it. Uh, I think sometimes that people may not be aware of the uh, the symbolism behind it and the meaning behind it, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, and therefore that can create some measure of confusion. But I personally don't have a problem with that. I just think that we need more Christian poetry. Again, uh, it's symbolic language. Do we get rid of symbolic language now? Do we talk directly or can we use symbols? For example, the cross of the Jordan is normally used death and going into heaven. What do we do about that? So I do feel that there's a place for artistic ability to be expressed within the Christian community. And I do think that a lot of people who have skills that are now using those skills in the world, I think that to take that skill and use it within the, the Christian community, I think it, it, it serves the, the church well. Uh, but when it comes to the actual pulpit ministry, you know, there's something completely different. But there's, there's room, <clears throat> there's room definitely for Christians to come together and watch like John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress on uh, acted out, et cetera, et cetera, where the movies. Same thing with this uh, Nadir uh, Chronicles. I think is is is. I have no problem with it. So let's say someone has the gift of writing. Um, 
investing in writing a Christian novel that may not be a Bible story, but is teaching um, Christian morals, Christian principles, and may not even directly come out and tell the whole plan of salvation, but it is a, that's not their purpose. Their purpose is upliftment and Christian values. Well, I, I do feel that if they're going to do artistic work of that nature and they're going to use symbolism and so on, I do feel, generally speaking, it should have a Christian motif in the sense that it, it's whatever it does, it should end up where good conquers evil. Right. You okay. see what I'm saying? Uh, and I do feel there's room for that kind of expression. I'm trying to I got some grandchildren now. Ellie, Ellie is always telling me, "Daddy, tell me a story." I'm creating stories in my mind, and I am trying to. I, I, I told her one the other about a lizard, and you know, I'm, I'm using the lizard as a character. And I said, "So, what lesson did you learn?" No obedience. That, <laughs> and I think that there's room for a literature for children, yeah. uh, using stories but bringing out the biblical principle and morals. Uh, and I think that is fascinating for kids to, to learn those kind of things. It's like Aesop. Uh, fables. Yeah. I mean, those are invaluable, to be honest with you. Uh, and I, I do feel that there are Christians who have that ability and can use that ability uh, and, and use um, fictional stories, etc. But I do feel that the whole idea must be the, the motif of whatever they're doing must always end up with good, good conquers evil and that uh, there's some biblical moral principle is taught within that story. I think that's legitimate. Do you have a question? We would love to hear it. We would love for you to ask it. It doesn't have to relate to anything that has been said tonight. It can be completely off the wall. You can WhatsApp or text it to 1-268-782-1454. Or you can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 1-268-462-7454. 20. Pastor, what does the Bible say about how I can be right with God? I mean, there are so many. I think last time I looked, there was over 4,000 religions out there. Yeah. But what's the Bible say? Biblical teaching is, is very basic. And um, it, it says to man that man is lost. Man is alienated from God. And that alienation came because man has is born with a sinful nature as a result of the fall. And uh, there is a natural tendency within man to go astray, to do wrong. And every one of us know that we are sinners by nature and by choice. It is true that we're born with a sinful nature, but we also commit sin willfully and knowingly. The Bible said that that is an offense against God is called sin. And the Bible says that um, the only way that we can get into right relationship with the Holy God is to have that sin problem dealt with. The Bible teaches that God solved that problem. Uh, the same God that we offended, the same God out of love and compassion sent His Son to die in our place to take our place, to uh, take our sins upon Himself and then make His righteousness available to us. So when we put our faith and trust in Christ and what He did on the cross, uh, we find forgiveness and pardon and then we have what is called imputed righteousness so that God can see us in Him and deal with us in a, in, in a relational form. Uh, a holy God in order to deal with a sinful man, uh, needs that man needs to become righteous. But we are not righteous in ourselves, but we are righteous in Christ. And God sees us positioned in Christ and is now able to be lit. So to get a right relationship with God, it involves the matter of repenting of our sins and putting our faith and trust in Christ's work on the cross. That is what brings us into a relationship with Him. 
Here's a question for you. Pastor, can you please explain what is meant by the unity of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 3? And let me read that verse to set the context. Ephesians 4, 3 says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Well, I think it is, If you, the whole entire book of Ephesians, by the way, is a book about the church. And Paul is talking about the fact that uh, it's the Holy Spirit that unites all true, genuine believers because he baptizes us into this body, which is called the church. That's found in Corinthians chapter 12, that we are all baptized with one spirit into one body, which is the church. That's what is meant by the unity of the, the spirit. He unites all believers in Christ, within the body of Christ. And then, in terms of specificity, what does that mean in practical terms? Paul then goes on in the next few verses, verse 4 to 6, to explain that what unites uh, all true believers are seven cardinal beliefs. And those are the seven beliefs that are mentioned. Can you read verse 4 to 6? There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope, of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. These are the core doctrines that should unite all true, genuine believers. Uh, and and, and uh, I mean, these are fundamental issues that that we should we should understand. So even though we have different churches, denominations, there's only one true church made up of all true genuine believers. That is a principle. So I should be able to meet a person who is not part of the Baptist fraternity, and and I learn that that person is a genuine believer, and I sense that that person is genuine, and that should give me a sense of brotherhood. Uh, now, we may differ in certain doctrinal issues that would create ecclesiastical problems. So we can have a personal relationship, but because you might be holding to a particular area of doctrine that is, I find that is contrary to Scripture. But that doesn't stop me from relating to you as an individual and being a friend, etc., 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 etc. But that is what is the core. These are the core principles that uh, should unite believers and, and let us know that we belong to one body. I've often said this, Nathan, that if I ever get lost any time in the world, I don't care where I get lost. The first thing I want, tell me where church is. Uh, <laughs> I feel with people who are not believers. But I can't think of a place I can go on planet Earth that the one thing I, I get there, I, I just want to know if I'm lost, I don't know what to do. Can you tell me where a church is? Hmm. There is something about a I being a believer and that person being, we will connect because there's this common brotherhood, this common unity. That's what the unity of the Spirit is. He unites us. We don't want an artificial, mechanical, um, organizational unity where all the churches come together. That's never going to happen. But that's what people are working to. Uh, we are united in truth. It's the truth that unites us. And that's where, if there's going to be any other, any kind of unity, uh, in terms of outward manifestation of some organ, it has to be based on truth. People trying to make it based on love, but truth and love are not conflicting. And uh, <clears throat> we must love in the truth. That is the key. The, the truth is what is really central to everything that we are as Christians. So I hope that helps to explain a little bit. You use the phrase love in truth. Does that mean that I have to acknowledge your view? If it's contrary to Scripture, I have to acknowledge your view as equally 
true? No. No, what I'm saying basically is that people are saying today, it doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you love one another, let's come together and have a jolly good time. And I'm against that. Right? Uh, for example, I can't join with a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection. I can't join it with a, as, as a person who claims to be a Christian who doesn't believe in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. I can't join together in fellowship with a person who doesn't believe in the, the virgin birth. Uh, I can't join with a person who, who, who doesn't believe that there's going to be a heaven or there's going to be a hell. You get what I'm saying? Right. So I'm just trying to say to us that the, 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 we, must, we, um, we must unite and love around the, the fundamental truths that God has revealed in His Word and uh, not make love uh, apart from truth be the criteria by which we unite ourselves. Because this mushy love that people talk about is so contrary to Scripture. Uh, and I don't know why anybody, for example, I can't, uh, let me go another way, I can't join in love with uh, a, a homosexual church, with a homosexual pastor and people in the church are homosexuals. How in the world is that possible? Uh, they're contrary to Scripture, contrary to the truth. That's what, I'm, that, that's what I mean. The, the fundamental core doctrines is what unite us. And we must not let the, the, this bland, umbrella term love um, cause us to th- believe that we can, we can love each other as Christians and unite with each other and work with each other and ignore the fundamental truths of Scripture. That's what I'm warning against. We just can't do that. The next question says, Pastor Murphy, I've got a question in relation to 1 Corinthians 5, 5. It says, To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In that verse, what is meant by deliver unto Satan? Well, if you read verse 13, I think Paul makes it clear what he means by that. And what's involved in this matter of turning over a person unto Satan. If you read verse 13, see what it says. 1 Corinthians 5.13 says, But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So, in verse number 5, he's telling um, the church, Listen, you've got a young man in the church who is very, very immoral. He's having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. God forbid that it would be his real mother, but he's clearly having a relationship with, him, with his mo- one person who is called his mother, what uh, most people believe is his stepmother. And uh, he doesn't want to repent about it. He's engaged in sexual activity with her, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the church is tolerating it, I suppose, in the idea that they're so generous and so loving and so caring, it doesn't matter. And Paul says to them, listen, I, I'm not even there with you. But in my spirit, I say to you that, you know, this is not something you should tolerate in the church. Uh, deliver this one over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, Paul tells you in verse 13, it simply means to put him out of the church, dismember him, as it were, excommunicate him, uh, um, put him out of the, the assembly. And, and here's what Paul is saying. Within the body of Christ, within the church, that is where God, that's a place of safety, where God is among his people and God protects his people. When you take a believer and you exclude him and he's put outside the, the church, uh, he is now in the realm where Satan, who is now in the world, he's the God of this world, the prince of this world. So to do that, he, he brings himself from under the protective shadow of God because of his sin, and he's now put into the world, the realm where Satan can now dominate his, his life. That is what Paul means here. And that's why to be dismembered from a church or to be excommunicated from a church because of some sin, 
uh, is not to be taken very lightly. Uh, you're putting yourself outside the protection of God and put yourself under the judgment of the enemy. And Paul says that his body be destroyed, but his spirit be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. So clearly this is not the, the fact that this guy is destined for hell. But the chastening God, removing his protective care, Satan is now turned over to Satan as it were. Satan does his work. And, uh, and um, what happens as a result of that, if he doesn't repent, he eventually is destroyed. The wonderful thing about this story, though, happy, it has a happy ending. Because if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6 to 11, it is very clear that this person that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 5 evidently was repentant and was eventually restored to the church. So the affliction that the Lord allowed Satan to do on this man apparently produced positive effects upon him. So he returned to the church and was repentant. Could you read verse um, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6 to 11? 2 Corinthians 2, 6 to 11 says, Sufficient to such a man is the punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrawise ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. And if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ. Yeah, same thing. Paul is saying, listen, uh, you look, the, the, the guy has come around. He's, he now wants to be restored. But here's the problem, Nathan. They don't want to restore him. And uh, Paul is advising them, listen, if you don't, <laughs> the guy's repentant. If you don't receive him back and, and treat him with love and restore him to the church, he goes into despair. Where does he turn to now? Right? And then he said, you know, I, whoever you forgive, I forgive, basically. So clearly, um, turning him over to Satan in the sense that he's out of the protection of God's safety because he's disciplined, uh, he's out of the church, etc. Satan begins to chastise him, basically. The Lord, of course, is superintending all of this. It's almost in the, in the case of Job. Uh, and he learns the lesson uh, of the affliction that is now being brought upon him in the world. He repents, he goes back to the church. The church is hesitant to forgive him. Paul has to write to him and says, enough is enough. This young man is repentant, restore him, put him back, and uh, show your love towards him, basically. But how do you, that sounds great, but from a practical standpoint, how do you treat him as a brother in Christ when, I know you should forgive him, but in your mind every time you see him on Sunday morning or on, in this case, maybe Saturday, that your mind goes to the, the filth that that individual... I mean, we I know we all, yeah. our hearts are, are evil, but any advice? I mean, even no, in today's day... I, I just think in the case like that is the proof is in the, the change of the lifestyle. We don't have a problem forgiving a person if we see that there's evident transformation in a person's life. Okay. Right. That that that's why it takes some time. It's just not some, uh, and that's why when you put people on discipline, Nathan, you you give them a, like a six month period because you want to observe in that six month period what happens if they're given evidence that they're truly repentant or not. If that person is, you can remove the discipline in three months. 
uh, if you really see this guy is really broken, I mean, concerned about whatever it is, and doing everything in his power to, to make, take remedial action, there's no need to make him go to the land. Somebody in the church can say, listen, I've met with this guy, whatever, I know this guy, I've seen this guy, and the church convinced, listen, this guy is truly broken over this whole thing. I don't think when people see that, they have a problem forgiving. It's when a person who has been disciplined and it's, they go on with a nonchalant attitude like nothing happened, you know, uh, uh, everybody sins, blah, blah, blah. That person, uh, in my judgment, should never be restored to the church. Uh, they might give them another six months, basically, until there is an evidence in that person's life. Uh, take, take the matter of immorality. Uh, let's suppose somebody's caught and, and, and the church put the person on discipline, et cetera, et cetera and they've got a, a person who's mentoring or somebody's holding them accountable. But let's suppose in that six-month period, the, the person still continues to do the same thing. The person's not serious. There's no need to restore him for any length of time. You, you extend the time now, give him a year. And if he continues living a certain way and there's no change, uh, they can dismember him because there's no evidence. And then... Sometime later, if he comes back and he's really repentant, but it takes time. And whether I respond to a person favorably after discipline depends on what transformation I see. If I see brokenness, if I see sorrow, if I see the effort is being made to correct whatever it is, the problem doesn't really exist. It's like a, a person who murders somebody. You know, I can forgive a murderer if I see that... Uh, he's really broken. He really understand what he's done. He's, he's sorrowful over it. You could forgive a person like that, but the idea that you know, well, you know, everybody's doing the same thing. Uh, you know, I'm not perfect. Blah blah blah. And there's no attempt to to bring about transformation. Broke. That person need to remain outside the church until there's evidence of transformation and change. Does a person have to be an active member of a church to be accepted into heaven? No. Uh, remember that again go back to the thief in the cross the church started in Acts chapter 2 he certainly got the third paradise and he was never part of the church so we can't make church membership a necessity of, uh, and then what do you do with uh, the churches where a lot of people that uh, for centuries believe that a man is saved by works so you got people in church who ain't getting to heaven because that's the fun- fundamental belief they have they're being saved by their works what about the, the guy who was excommunicated from the church because he said by faith alone? Which one is saved? <laughs> so it, it, churches, remember the church is there to nurture God's people. Uh, that's what the whole purpose. The church is not, it's a salvific instrument or agent, but salvation is not found in being a member of the church. The church has the message of salvation to carry to that individual, and then when that person is saved, he becomes part of the body of a family. And that's where you grow and develop and use your talents and your gifts. But um, the actual church membership doesn't put you in the kingdom. The question coming in from the Southern Caribbean. Good night, Pastor. How can you improve your communication? My question is in regard to James chapter 3. And if you're not familiar with James chapter 3, that's talking about taming the tongue. And what was the question? How do I? How can I improve my communication? Well, I think James gives some pretty advice there as well. He, he, he goes on later and James said, let every man be swift to hear and slow, slow to, to speak, yeah. right? Slow to anger. Slow down, slow to anger. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that has to do with controlling the tongue. And James goes on to say that 
only a perfect man could control the tongue. This tongue is where we get a lot of our trouble, right? But again, uh, the Holy Spirit in Acts in uh, Galatians chapter five, one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is what self-control. Okay, so there should be a level where the believer learns to uh, control his tongue and control his speech. Uh, so that is something that you need to, uh, to to get a handle on. You you can't do that without asking the Holy Spirit to help you. But that would be one of the things that one needs to do, the control of the tongue. And, and James is so ex- exhaustive in his treatment of the problem with the tongue. And when you read it yourself, uh, he, he lets you know, quite frankly, that this is the main... <laughs> he said we control a ship by a little rudder, but we can't even control this little tongue which controls the whole body, basically. But the whole idea is to get a handle on the problem we have with the tongue and um, bring it under control. And, of course, one of the ways to do it under control is to, be, to, to try to think before you actually speak. Uh, and, by the way, even though I know that, there are times when my wife would ask me something, I think I know the answer before, and then she said, wait, you can read my mind? <laughs> <laughs> so even though it's um, something that we need to practice, it, it's not something going to happen. It's, it's a, a lifelong struggle we're going to have with the control of our tongue because that is the instrument that really is perhaps the most destructive uh, uh, instrument we have. And without discipline, I don't see how we'll ever master the control of the tongue. And that's why Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself unto godliness. And the word there, discipline, the word we get, the word gymnastics. And the same way a gymnast uh, practices to uh, to control his body and to use his body and to restrain himself, etc., etc. Nothing is going to happen in the Christian life of any significant change, whether it be the tongue, whether it be the moral life, without discipline. There has to be discipline in the life, and uh, you don't grow, mature, you don't mature in Christ, you don't develop spiritually without discipline, and that is something that you have to do for yourself. God can't do everything for you. He can enable you uh, in your power, but your will have to be involved in whatever decision is made. If I want to, to in, uh, improve my prayer life, I just can't ask God to help me to, to pray more. i got to pray more myself. And I, I could ask Him for strength uh, not to fall asleep, etc., etc. But I have to get into the practice of it, etc. Well, Lord, help me to witness to other people. Well, what is He going to do? As you, unless you discipline yourself to get into the habit of witnessing, it's just not going to happen. Same thing with let me fasting or Bible reading. I, well, I, I need to read my Bible more. So what do you expect God is going to do? He's going to come down every day and say, okay, time to read your Bible. No, you have to get into the habit of, of reading your Bible. So just like those other factors, uh, the tongue, again, can only be mastered by practice and self-control. You referenced early on in that answer, uh, Galatians 5, I think it was, and talking about self-discipline, and that in theory we should reach a point where we're able to control our tongue through that. Um, I think it's 2nd or 3rd John talks about a passage that a Christian, some people interpret it this way, that a Christian can reach a point where they no longer sin. Um, Is that realistic that a, a true Christian can reach a point where they are have reached attained sinless perfection? Well, there are two, there are two problems that have it in the same passage. <coughs> so, 
book you're talking about, the book of 1 John. One John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And next one John said, he that's born of God does not practice sin, does not sin. And that's where people take that one part. Uh, he that's born of God does not sin. Again, the explanation for that is very, very uh, um, to understand it, you've got to understand the, the Greek tense. Okay? Uh, he that's born of God does not habitually practice sin. It doesn't say he can't sin, but he does not habitually practice sin. That's the difference between not being able to sin and habitual practice sin. So the explanation for that is that we never come to the point of sinless perfection. There's no such thing as sinless perfection down here. Okay, The only time we will ever be sinlessly perfected is when we are completely transformed. But we will be radically transformed and there will be changes in our lives throughout our Christian journey. But we never come to that point of perfection until the Lord returns and we are transformed and we don't have a sinful nature. As long as we have a sinful nature within ourselves, we cannot have sinless perfection down here. And those who have advocated this, especially even John Wesley, uh, called Christian perfection, um, again, it hinges on not understanding the, the Greek tense, uh, the linear tense, the continuous tense. Uh, you just take that verse one. I know of one guy right now in, in, in Barbados who teaches basically on the Internet that you can come to the point where a believer never sins, right? I'd like to meet that person, by the way. <laughs> uh, the reality is that we sin in thought, word, and deed. I think it's audacious for any man to say he loved God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his spirit. I don't know of any person who could say that and really, really uh, say that with any sense of perfection. Uh, we all know that we that's not the case. So there's no such thing as sinless perfection down here. There's radical trans- transformation, of course. There's the diminishing of a sinful lifestyle as we mature in Christ. But the idea that we've come to the point where we can't sin anymore is an illusion. Uh, question for you, Pastor. Pastor Murphy, what is the meaning or significance of the different grades of offerings mentioned in Leviticus under the Old Testament covenant of law? For example, worshipers were told they could bring burnt offerings of cattle, of turtle dove, of young pigeons, so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, again, uh, we remember that all of these sacrifices offered in the Old Testament were types of Christ who would come and die. And the blood was a covering for the sin. Remember that sin brought death. And the only way to cancel death was through life. And life was in the blood. So that's why an innocent uh, animal died for the guilty person, pointing to the point where Christ would eventually come, the innocent one who will die for the sinner. But the fact that they allowed uh, um, the cattle, um, offerings for the cattle in the herds and flock and uh, birds, etc. Uh, two things. Number one, uh, this was God condescending uh, to show that he was concerned about the less fortunate, the poor. I mean, you can't expect a poor man to sacrifice his, 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 his ox. So it's, I mean, that might be his livelihood. So God is now making provision, not just for the man who has, but for the man who has not. It's just showing you that the, God's thought included all humanity. From the, from the highest to the lowest, from the richest to the poorest, are included within that, uh, that, that sphere of God's concern. 
So the guy who can, had a cattle, he could sacrifice the cattle, who had herds, etc. But those who only had fowls or turtle doves or pigeons, they would not be excluded from forgiveness because they didn't have the means of doing that. God provided, it was the, the key thing is the blood. So whether it be the blood of an ox, the blood of a pigeon, the blood, of, the blood um, is for the rich, is for the poor, etc. That's the basic principle. The other thing I think, uh, Nathan, as well, that uh, I think it also uh, talks of, um, indirectly about the significance of the grades of the offering has to do with the, the degree of one's apprehension of uh, the value of the sacrifice. And what I mean by that is this. When a person... Uh, sees the 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 the, the value of uh, forgiveness. Uh, I really see what is done. I can see a person understanding that it requires a greater sacrifice. It's like the more you appreciate the death of Christ, really understand what it is and what He's really done for you, the greater your desire to sacrifice for Him. So I think is the mm-hmm. that degree. You know, I, if I understand the Messiah coming at at a, a pigeon level. Basically, I give a pigeon. When I understand it at the greater level, I give a, an ox because my degree of comprehension now makes me the point where I'm willing to make more sacrifice because I really understand this. It works out here today as well. I mean, he who has been forgiven much, what loves much. Mm-hmm. So I think that is also part of the comprehension why the, the, there's this different order. The man who comprehends what this really means at a higher level he makes a bigger sacrifice. So I do think that that's also involved, not just the idea of catering for everybody, the rich, the poor, but I think it also has to do with the, because I can have I can have a herd, and I can have a flock, and I can have oxen. I don't mean I have to give an ox, but when I really understand what redemption is all about, I'm not going to give a pigeon or give a sheep. I can I can give an ox because I comprehend that knowing, and now I'm willing to make greater sacrifice because I really appreciate what is being done. Same thing today. Uh, if you come to the scripture as far as the believer today, there are three levels of um, sacrifice that God expects. Romans 12 tells the believer, present your body a living sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 13, he talks about the sacrifice of praise and also the sacrifice of, of doing good and doing good works. Those are three different levels. And depending on the degree of our understanding and appreciation of Christ, uh, our response would be one of should be all three, but be one of those more. The more I understand his sacrifice, the more I surrender to him, right? I might praise him, but he'll never fully grasp everything. And of course, I do good works in order to honor him. So I think that the significance of, of the these different levels, uh, that's the twofold purpose. To cater for everybody's need, the rich and the poor, but also it has to do with the apprehension of the truth that is there and the degree of my sacrifice to, to honor the Lord. Why do we need to or not need to offer sacrifice today? Well, uh, again, we are, in my judgment, we are uh, boxed into Scripture. Okay? And the Bible tells us that part of our responsibility and duty as believers who have been benefited from the, the death of Christ, that we are we make sacrifices to God. Uh, that is one of the things that's required of the believer. But I also think it, it flows from the fact of our love for the Lord. For example, take, take missions. The mandate of the church is to carry the gospel to the end of the world. Uh, the church can never uh, be able to send missionaries unless it has some kind of income. Okay? 
when I begin to understand what Christ has done for me on the cross and his death for me on the cross, and I've benefited from that, his, uh, his sacrifice, and that I am now headed for heaven, my concern and welfare for others who have not heard the gospel and my concern that Christ's gospel, he paid the, the, the price to, to have the gospel, uh, I am now incentivized to make whatever sacrifice that this same gospel I've received is able to carry to the end of the world. So I have within myself a sense of duty and response, not just to God, but I also must have a response to my fellow man in terms of reaching him with the gospel. So sacrifice is an essential part. I do not know of any religion, pagan or other pagan, where the votaries and the patrons of that religion have never do not offer some kind of sacrifice. Even today, in in, in the darkest part of the world, where they're still worshiping um, uh, voodoo gods and worshiping other, they sacrifice. Even in the Hindu temples today, they they, they give meat, they give food, etc. It is something that is built within man that the because of there's a god. And we are creatures. The only way we can show uh, respect and honor to that God is to give back to that God out of what we have received. I think that's built into our psyche, but also it's part of our responsibility uh, as a duty that's given to us in Scripture. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it in the millennium that the sacrifices at the temple will be reinstated. Yeah. What is the purpose for that? Because we know Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice, uh-huh. final payment. Well, again, I, I think that it would be one of the ways of getting the Jews to understand what this whole thing was all about. It was The Messiah was ultimately going to come as a sacrificial lamb. And I think that uh, with the Messiah being there, I think that there's a lot of teaching that will take place in helping the Jews to comprehend, look, this is what the burnt offering was about. This is what the peace offering was about. Remember that we celebrate um, the Lord's Supper, reminding us that he's already died, right? I think in that day, the Jews would be looking back on, on the fact that he has shown us clearly that he was coming to die. So we look forward to him coming back, but I think in that part it's taking Israel, uh, taking the Jews back to the fact that all of this, you miss all of this. And I think that is what it is, it, it is all about. So it symbolizes uh, for them in a very real form. Here we are, the very Lamb of God that all these things pointed to that we never comprehended. Uh, I think that is where a lot of teaching is going to be involved in helping the Jews to understand uh, what all of these sacrifices meant. I think that's the purpose of it. It's a symbol of Christ's death, but also a memorial uh, of what he's done. Pastor, does baptism take the place of circumcision in this dispensation of grace? No, I can see why some people would think that, because um, the Jews, for example, could not be part of the Abrahamic covenant, except they've gone through the ritual of circumcision. That's what brought in the Abrahamic covenant. And I could see the, the Jews thinking, well, if we, the Jews, in order to become part of the Abrahamic covenant, had to go through baptism, how then the church, which is also beneficiary of the Abrahamic covenant, would not have to also go through the same processes, etc. So there, uh, I could see where in the New Testament, where they were arguing you need to be circumcised, because we had to be circumcised part of the Abrahamic covenant. You're part of the Abrahamic covenant, so why you don't have to be circumcised? But the church made it very clear that circumcision and, and uh, was not necessary 
for the Gentiles. And the only two ordinances that God gave, which is the, uh, the communion and the baptism. Uh, baptism is not an entrance into the Abrahamic covenant. It's the fact that you're already in the uh, new covenant that give evidence and bear evidence that you're part. You don't baptize to get into the new covenant. Because you're in the new covenant, you're indicating to the world that you're part of the body of Christ. But it doesn't replace it. There's no mention in the Bible, in not any one iota in the Bible, where it says that baptism replaces circumcision. Two different um, institutions belong to two different periods. One belonged to the Old Testament, one belonged to the New Testament. Now, when you're talking about baptism there, you're talking about water baptism. Yeah. What is baptism of the Spirit, and when does that take place? Is it at the same time as you're baptized? In the no, when you get converted, uh, according to, uh, I think it is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, I think it is 13 or 14, where it says, we are all baptized by the Spirit into one body. That's what baptism, that's what took place on the day of Pentecost, where a person who puts their faith and trust in Christ by the Spirit is put placed within the body of Christ. That is called the baptism of the Holy Spirit being placed in the body of Christ. Water baptism is something completely different. Water baptism is where you are converted, you're saved, and you're given a visible testimony to the world that you share in Christ's death and his resurrection, and you are now raised to newness of life. So it's more a visible testimony of your union with Christ. Uh, as a result of the spirit baptism. Two different things altogether. And that's where the confusion comes in about the second blessing, the the second baptism, uh, etc., etc. Again, uh, a lot of that confusion comes about from the Corinthian passage, not understanding that that's something that takes place at conversion, that when you put your faith and trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit baptizes you or places you in the body of Christ so you become a member of that body. And they, they see that as... Uh, a time when you speak in tongues, a second blessing, the Spirit comes upon you, you speak in tongues. <laughs> That's the teaching that is normally conveyed uh, about the second blessing. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.48. We have 10 minutes left in this particular episode of That's Truth. Still enough time for you to send in your question. You can send it via WhatsApp or text message to one 782 one four five four. Again, WhatsApp or text two six eight seven eight two fourteen fifty four. Send it in quickly so that there is time for Pastor to give it a sufficient answer. And you can call and ask your question live on the air by calling one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. Pastor, what is meant? by salvation is of the Jews. And it's referencing a verse, uh, John chapter 4, verse 2, which says, Through Jesus himself, baptize not but his disciples. I may have the wrong reference. John 4, 22? John 4, 22. Sorry. Okay, let's see. John, ye worship, ye know not what. Ye know what ye worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Yeah. Well, that statement itself was made by Christ when he was talking to the woman at Samaria uh, who had had um, five husbands, was on number six, and our Lord is dealing with her. And she tries to distract the Lord uh, by getting religious talk about uh, the Samaritans having uh, their own separate worship at Mount Gerizim, etc., etc., and our Lord uh, uh, talks to her, and um, 
she wanted to know what's so special. You know, the Jews said we should worship here at Jerusalem, but uh, St. Martin's worship Mount Gerizim, etc., etc. Uh, and uh, our Lord throws a statement there to let her know that salvation is of the Jews. And what that really means is simple. The Messiah is coming through the Jewish race. That is that is traced from the book of Genesis right through the scriptures that uh, he would come to Abraham, he would come to Jacob, uh, you come to Judah, you come to David, right down the line. So the Messiah is coming through the Jewish people as a nation. And that is an indisputable fact because God has chosen, in His sovereignty, has chosen the nation Israel as the vehicle, the human uh, vehicle, through whom the Messiah was come. We discover later on in the Bible that He comes, <clears throat> He's called of the tribe of Judah, uh, He's called of the seed of David, of, of Jesse, etc., etc. So the teaching is very, very clear that the Messiah would come to the Jewish people. That's the biblical teaching. It just reminds us that um, we have a lot um, to be thankful for and a lot to be very grateful for uh, in, in terms of how God has used the Jew uh, to bless the world and to bless the Gentile. The Bible we have substantiates the Jewish Bible. In other words, most of the writers are Jewish writers, etc., etc. Uh, God is sovereign and chosen that. Um, Christ uh, came according to the, the Jew, Jewish race as well. And let us never forget that the Jews are God's special earthly chosen people as a vehicle for salvation, not just of the Jews of the whole world. Uh, that is the principle that our Lord, he's not embarrassed to say salvation of the Jews. Some people may be. But uh, there's no Messiah who has not come to the, the, the line of Abraham and the Jewish land they had, the Messiah has to be of Jewish stock in order to be the Messiah. That's the essence of what uh, our Lord is saying in that passage. I don't know if this is a fair question, but it just came to my mind. What would have happened if the Jews had not rejected Jesus? Would salvation have been... What, what if, if the Jews had not rejected Jesus, uh -huh. would salvation have been offered to the Gentiles? I, well, the Bible makes it clear that with the, in case of the the, uh, the Jews, that they would have, if they had accepted the kingdom. Remember that the Jewish nation always brought in, there was supposed to be a centripetal force to draw the Gentiles in. Their distinctiveness and the difference was to create a desire on the, in the part of the, the pagan nations to want the God of the Jews. That's what it was all about that these pagan gods we've gotten not true gods. That was the whole plan. Uh, so if they had received him, the kingdom would have come in. That's what the, the, the Bible says, because the kingdom is going to come in as a result of their rejection after the tribulation period. But if they had responded, the kingdom would be set up. And the kingdom has always been wide enough to include Gentiles. Uh, even in in, um, in the Old Testament, you've got people like uh, uh, Ruth, who was a Moabite, you got uh, Hagar, not Hagar, um, uh, Rahab, uh, who's a Canaanite, in, 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 again, and uh, you have other Gentiles who are always. So it's never been, it was never been an, an, an exclusive club where only Jews were to be saved. It was always that the Jews were a selected people to be a means of a wider uh, salvation offered to the world. Uh, and that is still uh, true today. The Jews, because they rejected Christ, has now been temporarily put aside, as Paul talks in Romans chapter 11. 
uh, until the time the Gentile had been fulfilled. And what God has done now, he's grafted in the church to fulfill the very purpose that Israel failed to fulfill, which is to get people into the kingdom. And our job now is not a centrifugal force where we sit down and tell people, come. Our job now is a centrifugal force. We go out to the world and bring the world in. That's our job. So the, the mission has changed. We don't have an earthly kingdom down here to, to create a, you know, dealing with clothing and food and planting. The whole thing about Israel is about this kind of a, a commonwealth that was in a very physical sense. But that's not what attracts people to the gospel is the, the good news in our lives as opposed to these other um, physical factors that were involved Israel Israel is a physical nation uh, and by their physicality and all the physical things would be attraction to the Gentiles we are to attract the, the, the Gentiles through the gospel and through a changed lives two different things there is so much talk in today's world about meditation we even hear pastors talk about you should be meditating on God's word you can find that in scripture is there a difference between what a pastor is saying about you should meditate and what the world is saying you should meditate yeah well there's a tremendous significance difference uh, should I say between what we call Christian meditation and what today is projected as as meditation most of the modern forms of meditation is the eastern form of meditation which uh, has no resemblance to biblical meditation. Uh, Dr. Geisler, in one of his books, um, called the, the, uh, in, what's called the infiltration of the New Age, draws a distinction between Christian meditation and the Eastern form of meditation that's become so popular like in yoga and the, of different forms of uh, things that they have. He, he talks about, uh, here are some of the differences he points out. In terms of the object, Christian meditation is about focusing on God, a person. In Eastern meditation, you're focusing on nothing, basically. There is some abstract that you're trying to get in contact with, but it's not a person. So the difference there is that there is an object, there's a personal object in Christian meditation. In Eastern meditation, it's not a personal object. It's some consciousness, but it's not a person. Purpose. The purpose of Christian meditation is to worship God. The purpose of uh, Eastern meditation is to merge with this universal consciousness that nobody can really describe. Completely different. We want to know God. They talk about having a higher conscience where they merge and lose their identity. Means, the means of Christian meditation is revelation, God's Word. You meditate on David Tombo, I meditate on God's Word. I meditate on God's works. When it comes to the uh, Eastern meditation, it is human intuition. It's I allowing my mind to be empty. There's nothing I'm focused on, objective, in the scriptures. I'm just allowing my mind to wander, and that is being assisted sometimes even by drugs. So uh, there's no truth, revelational truth that I'm meditating on. Christian meditation is on truth, whether it be truth in the scriptures or truth in nature. Uh, then it's all about this, this sphere of meditation. With the Christian is using his mind, uh, with scripture I'm taking uh, something like God's attributes God's character and I'm thinking about what this love means the dimensions of this love uh, how it's manifested I'm, I'm meditating on that or God's greatness or God's providence or God's sovereignty or, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about that and but when it comes to Eastern meditation it's non-rational it is just quite frankly empty in your mind that's what it's about there's nothing you hold on to and use your reason to come to a conclusion 
And then, of course, when it comes to experience, it is objective reality I'm meditating on, whether it be God, whether it be the nature, whether it be character, whether it be attributes. When it comes to the other form of meditation, it's purely subjective. You, they can't even tell you exactly what they meant. Uh, there's no dimension to that that is actually real. And then the last thing is, for the Christian, it's a point of concentration. For the um, Eastern meditation, it's about relaxation. Completely different. So we must not confuse this term meditation. There's a distinctive form of Christian meditation, and the Eastern form of meditation is popular there. And let's understand it completely different, using the same language, but using different meanings. In the last 15 seconds, should a Christian practice Eastern meditation? Absolutely not. The only meditation the Bible talks about is to meditate on God's Word, His character, His works. We must stay away from that Eastern thing, emptying your mind, coming to contact, merging with something we don't know about. We want reality, not fiction. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.